save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. As we welcome you along uh, to the uh, programme after a bank holiday uh, weekend. And I'm just seeing what's coming through breaking on the news wires is that the former Taoiseach uh, John Bruton has uh, died. It's the statement that's been issued by Fiona Gale. Says the 76-year-old died peacefully at the Mater Hospital in Dublin early this morning and he was surrounded by his family and that was after a long uh, illness. That's the uh, former Taoiseach John Bruton has passed uh, away. May he rest in uh, peace and condolences to all of his family and there will be many in the Fianna Gael party very, very saddened by that news because he was he was a much-loved uh, leader and uh, a much-loved Taoiseach uh, as well. That's the, now the late John uh, Bruton. 0818 and just when I was looking at the weather forecast there we've got a wet uh, day uh, ahead and at the weekend I noticed it was lovely to see daffodils are starting to bloom and I spotted some snowdrops as well and you think oh it's a great sign that spring is on the way and after celebrating St Bridget's Day and we've been talking last week about the first of February being the first of spring and everybody looking forward to saying goodbye to the winter. Well, the, nobody has told the weather that it's goodbye to uh, winter because it's certainly not over. And Meta Erin are forecasting for this week a mix of rain, sleet and even snow as we move uh, to the we- it moved through the week. And as I say, today is a very wet uh, day. But what's going to happen later on when that rain clears southwards this afternoon, the temperatures are going to start to dry and icy conditions that are forecast for this evening. Now they're saying most areas uh, will be dry but wintry showers are going to take over overnight. Frost and ice as well as temperatures fall to between minus 2 and plus 2 degrees. So I imagine we'll be out de-icing the cars uh, tomorrow because frosty and icy conditions for uh, Wednesday uh, it will be dry uh, but with frosty and icy uh, conditions and on Thursday rain and sleet will move further north and then that will clear to scattered showers in the south so a couple of cold chilly days ahead wrap up warm 0818103103 our lines are open and no surprise uh, to read a study in the Irish Independent uh, today that they've conducted that shows that more than two out of three GPs in rural Ireland are no longer taking on new patients and depending on where you are in the country and what GP you are assigned to some people are waiting up to two weeks for uh, an appointment I say no 
surprise because we've been talking about the problems trying to access GPs, particularly in rural areas, either when somebody moves to an area and they're trying to sign up with a GP. And we're constantly hearing about people who are very frustrated trying to get an appointment to see their local uh, doctor. So this uh, finding has, uh, this was a survey that they conducted amongst registered GPs nationwide. It showed more than half the GPs saying they simply cannot accept any new uh, patients. With many, they already say they're literally balancing lengthy books with long, long uh, waiting lists. But the numbers rise and are even higher in rural areas. 32% of practices outside of the main cities are open to taking on new patients, but that's compared with over 50% if you're in an urban area, if you're in the city. While exceptions can be made, many practices say that they're simply not in the position to take on a new patient unless they fall within their catchment area or if they fit another criteria with decisions now are being made on a case by case basis by the GP. Did we ever see that we would be in a position in this country where you could not register with a GP in your area? Waiting times for an appointment. Now that that differs greatly depending on where you are in the country but it also differs greatly between urban areas and rural areas. On average for example patients in Dublin can be seen on the same day as a request for an appointment while those looking to book a non-urgent appointment in other parts of the country could in some cases be waiting two weeks and it is most common that people across the country will see their GP within a week from the time of calling for an on and this we're talking about non-urgent appointments people us here in the south we can expect an appointment within three days while those in the east and the west get a slot between two and three days now the survey also found that when a patient called to make an appointment with their GP, they were regularly welcomed by a recorded voice message warning them that the practice was receiving a large volume of calls and to form them that their call is in a queue. Some asked the caller to avoid becoming aggressive with staff, while others told them that during the periods of high demand, they'll be asked about their symptoms to identify their priority for an appointment. And that, I know, upsets and annoys some people when it's the receptionist at the GP practice is asking somebody, well, what are your symptoms? And, you know, how long have you felt like that? And where is the pain? You know, and I've heard people say the receptionist is not a nurse. The receptionist is not a doctor. Why is the receptionist asking me all of these questions? And the reason that they're doing it is, is to try to work out and try to identify who urgently needs an appointment and who who doesn't. And I'm not surprised to see some doctor's practices putting that in their message. Please don't become aggressive with staff, because while some patients are getting frustrated that the receptionist is quizzing them about their uh, ailment and then they take it out on the receptionist even though the receptionist has been told this is what he or she needs uh, to do. Now the Irish Medical Organisation were asked to respond to this uh, survey And they say attracting GPs to rural areas has become significantly more difficult in the past decade. They say there are a number of obstacles to attracting rural GPs, such as a lack of sufficient support for the doctors, the distance to other services. They also say if you go into a rural practice, there's onerous hours of commitment, as well as difficulties in obtaining sick and holiday leave. And I think that's a huge problem when they can't get a locum to come in and take over for them. 
The Irish Medical Organisation have been advocating for a number of years for an enhanced range of support specifically for rural GPs so so as to try to make those posts more attractive and more sustainable for those already in situ and for the new GPs that are coming up and being newly trained. Also acknowledging that many GP practices throughout the country were already at or close to capacity and safety patient limits. The IMO says there are not enough GPs in Ireland to meet patient numbers and particularly in rural Ireland the problem is even greater. They outlined that there are seven GPs per 10,000 of the population when in reality we should have at least 12 GPs per 10,000 of the population and by doing that you ensure a safe and effective uh, service but we're at 7 per 10,000 so the I know Ainthu leader uh, Padda Tobin uh, he's calling it out and saying look we're not training enough GPs for the population increase also he points out that many GPs are emigrating why are they emigrating because pay terms and conditions are all much better abroad and he referenced how in 2022, 442 Irish doctors were issued with temporary work visas to go to Australia while others went to uh, Canada, stressing that we need to compete with a better offering to doctors. And you can understand why these young doctors, if they are getting a better offering in other countries, you can understand why they are uh, deciding to leave. And of course, we have a new generation of young people, which would include a new generation of GPs who are putting more value on their work-life balance and they want to guard against burnout. There isn't a case of uh, some young GP deciding to go into the practice and it's a vocation and he's going to dedicate his whole life to it. He wants time off. He wants to maybe have a family. He wants to be able to organise holidays. And of course, if you can't find a locum and you're in a rural area, you can't leave uh, the practice. And the finding of the locum, again, is something we've spoken about uh, before because once upon a time, there was a time when retired doctors. They would stand in and they would do the locum work. But of course, we've got high insurance costs now and then there's other red tape and it means it's no longer attractive for the retired doctors who would be willing to help out and maybe do an odd shift or maybe do a weekend so that a doctor could could get away or get a day off to go to a wedding or, or whatever it is. And the problem, certainly what worries me is a problem, it's looking like it could, it might only get worse because when you look at the number of GPs in this country, there are 4,000 GPs and a quarter of that 4,000 so a 1,000 of them are over 60 and hundreds of them will be retired by uh, 2026. Now, could there be some light at the end of the tunnel? Let's try and see uh, some positivity uh, here. There was over 1,300 applications for 350 GP training posts last year and that seemingly was the highest number of applicants ever, which is showing a renewed interest among medical graduates who want to become uh, GP GPs. So what we need to do with those new GPs, we need to start attracting those doctors to rural areas and we need to make sure that once they're qualified, that they don't become part of that brain train and go to Australia or go to Canada or go to the UK or go to other European uh, countries. Now, we are looking to overseas We've been doing that uh, for some time now to see can we bring doctors from other countries over here. And there are about 50 GPs that have travelled from South Africa and they've been recruited to work uh, in uh, Ireland. They're taking part. That's a two year programme of supervision and training. And I'm sure most of those uh, 50 South African GPs are in rural areas. The idea is that they get supervised and training 
working with a family doctor and the hope and the prayer is that they'll stay in the areas uh, where they've done the training and where the GP shortages is most affected. Now I know I was talking to John Paul uh, in the office this morning before I came on air and I know tomorrow we are going to be speaking with a rural based uh, GP who's very worried about this particular issue and this was we had put the feeders out for this uh, rural GP to talk to us. This was even before this survey came out uh, today so it's very much there in black and white that we have a short of GPs and it is affecting people trying to go in to get an appointment even though I had to go to uh, my GP just getting regular bloods done last week. Now I'll fess up and say I booked the appointment two weeks in advance because I knew my bloods were due and I knew I needed to get a renewal of uh, my you know six months prescription so I said okay, two birds with one stone so I allocated myself plenty of time to get the doctor of choice that I wanted so it was, it was two weeks in advance I booked the appointment and when I was chatting with my doctor about it uh, she was making the point that you know people who are very unwell, they will get to see a doctor on the day. But that's one of the reasons why the receptionists then are quizzing people, which doesn't go down well with everyone. Not everybody wants to divulge all of their information to the receptionist on the other end of the phone. And some people then lose their patience and take it out on the receptionist, which is unfair. Mary's been on to us by WhatsApp 0862 103 103 to say hi. Uh, I was in Mallow over the weekend and the Christmas lights are still up. Are they never going to take them down, says Mary? Well, they took down the big Christmas uh, tree. Uh, the lights are still up. We'll try and find out from the council. I'm assuming they're waiting uh, on workmen to be available to take them down or is it a contractor that they have to bring in to take them down? And then on another council issue that we're going to get onto the council about as well is uh, e- e- an email to the programme uh, Cork Today at c103.ie from Helen to say, Hi, Hi Patricia in Canturk across from the health shop there seems to be conflicting road signage by the council. Now Helen has um, thankfully sent on photographs. As the photograph clearly shows, two parking spaces with white paint outlining the boxes for the two parking spaces. But there's also double yellow lines. It might be an idea for the council to erase the white part if they're changing and taking away these parking spaces, as it's really unfair if somebody was to park there and then received a parking fine uh, for somebody who parked there. I totally understand if the council need to change parking areas, but surely they also have a responsibility to clearly mark these spaces. While there are yellow lines there, the white parking boxes should surely have been removed, as otherwise it's giving totally conflicting messages. Photos below uh, taken uh, taken. Uh, I would assume this was yesterday, yeah, because the email came in uh, yesterday. And you can see it's right opposite the, the New Leaf, that wonderful health store in uh, Canturk. And there are the yellow lines, but you can see the white lines for two, I would say, two parking uh, spaces. Now, the white lines are a little bit faded, even though the yellow lines are a bit faded uh, as well. I'm assuming at one stage it was, it obviously was parking, and then they decided to put in double yellow lines to stop people parking there. But yeah, and, and I know the point you're making is it going to confuse people because it looks like there's parking spaces, but then surely as soon as you would see double yellow lines, I wouldn't park anywhere near uh, double yellow lines, that surely as soon as you see that, you would know not to park there. But look, we'll get on to the council and ask him, can they get out please and remove the white lines uh, for fear that it will cause confusion. Email Patricia now with your story or comment. Cork today at c103.ie. Can you talk to me? Cork.
Cork Today on C103. Now at last month's full council meeting of Cork County Council, one West Cork councillor put forward a passionate plea to ask the government to reduce the VAT rate for businesses in the hospitality and tourism sector. To explain why, Fine Gael councillor Marie O'Sullivan, who also runs a cafe, Salve's Cafe in Kinsale, uh, joins me this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Patricia, and a very good morning from a wild and windy conceal this morning. We're certainly on the wild Atlantic way this morning. <laughs> but still a beautiful place to be. Even but still a beautiful place to be yeah. and thankful to be here. Yeah. And I would like to thank you for allowing me to speak about well, this, well, this issue this morning. Well, it's, 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 it's my pleasure. Now, you're, you're, because obviously you're coming at this from your own personal experience as Absolutely. well as wearing your, your councillor hat. The VAT yeah. rate went back up to 13.5% from 9%. How does that increase affect a cafe like yours? Well, I suppose, look, I'm I'm very lucky in that I work an awful lot with the locals. So it mean, it basically means that it's increased our VAT by 50%. Now, that's a lo- an awful lot at the moment because anybody in this business will know the mar- margins are very little. And the cost of business has increased so much, your margins, margins are even tighter. So what happens if we increase our prices, we're not going to have bums and seats. Yeah. So what, what's going to happen is people, instead of coming in and sitting down in a cafe, they're going to go to the deli counter and get it there and take it away. So it's 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 a really concerning situation because I suppose looking at my own place where I work an awful lot with the locals and it's more of a, it's a social gathering as well as everything else. So you're taking if if I close, I'm taking that away from people. And I mean, social interaction is so important. And I think we've seen that so much in our local areas, especially after COVID where we missed that for so long. Yeah, and we even have the government running campaigns, encouraging people to go back out and hello, beautiful world, and telling people to do exactly that. Go to your local coffee shop and and have a cup of coffee. And of course, the the big problem is we are seeing a growing number of hospitality businesses, just like yours, closing down. Yeah, and like the mood of of business owners is really concerning because I think Patricia coming in like we know we get we get a good run into probably the middle of October, and then November is very quiet. The beginning of December is quiet, but usually the second half of December you get a really good run into Christmas. That didn't happen this year. There was probably three or four days before Christmas that it was busy, and I mean that won't take you through January. January was a horrific month for everybody. And it's a case you're looking at the bills coming in, you're thinking going forward, and it, it is very, very frightening for anyone in business. I mean, I can give you my own my own scenario here. We'll say, especially with, as regards the electricity. So my electricity bill went from sixteen hundred, eighteen hundred euros at one stage when it was at its highest to five thousand nine hundred for two months. Wow. So, I mean, that a small business, you can't you can't sustain that. And you, you know? can't and like, put I, prices up to cover that. You have to, but then you're not going to have the yeah, bums. But, and you, but you can't, you can't put it up enough to cover. You can't, you, and, can't, and you can't put it up enough. But this argument, like, Marie, that the government always put forward whenever we talk about uh, increasing or decreasing the hospitality yeah. VAT rate, we get, oh, the hotels didn't pass on the savings to customers when the VAT rate yeah. went down to 9%. Does that annoy you to hear that argument? It absolutely makes me furious because it's like if you have a bold child in a class, you're not going to punish the whole class because one child is bold. And I mean, I've, you know, I'm very glad that um, Minister Neil Richmond there came out last week in the Doyle and supported a split rate in the VAT in hospitality because, as he said, that sector employs a lot of people. Mm. And 
the government are dependent on it, dependent on it, you know, and there's no reason why it couldn't be split. And my argument as well, Patricia, is look, small indigenous business, not only hospitality, but hairdressers, beauty salons. Government is all about town centre. Town centre means these businesses have to stay open. And, you know, they are the heartbeat, the pulse of the town. And we are the businesses that give the work to transition your students. And I can't tell you the satisfaction it gives me to, you know, give a, a transition your student work experience. A lot of them have stayed working with me right until they finished school while they were studying in college. And you see these people going on and flying, you know, in their career that follows and gives such satisfaction to, you know, you've helped that kid on yeah, their way. Yeah. And, it's and very you're the very, the- and it's also you and others like you, uh, Marie, are the ones when uh, the local GAA, the local soccer club, exactly. the local whatever is looking for sponsorship. Yeah. It's the small independent business owners are the ones that support all of those organisations. Yeah. yeah, it's like one of one of my colleagues said to me recently, sure, it's it's a voucher a week. You know, yeah, and, that, yeah. and that's the reality of it. And we have absolutely no problem because, look, our locals are brilliant at supporting us. But what's really concerning, Patricia, is looking towards the tourist season. We're on the Wild Atlantic Way. Will there be actually businesses for tourists to eat? Mm-hmm. You know, because I think people are evaluating their situation an awful lot. And I really think that, look, national government needs to sit up and listen. There's a number of motions gone forward from local authorities. And I would really like to thank our county mayor, Frank O'Flynn, for allowing a good discussion on this at our full council meeting on the 22nd of January. You know, and he has sent a letter through to the Minister for Finance. Because, look, the local councillors are the people on the ground. And they have the pulse of the people at heart. Yeah. Do you believe that that, the VAT rate uh, affects rural areas more than businesses, say, in the larger cities or the larger urban towns? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, I mean, we don't we don't have the footfall that they have in, in the in the bigger cities. You know, the footfall isn't there. And I mean, we are a lot of us are depending on the same people, the same customers the whole time. And, you know, we're all very grateful for them. And I suppose the way I look at it is, the tourists that come in are a bonus, but your locals that are in every day, maybe for with me for two sausages and toast or a cup of tea, you're so delighted to see them every day, and we appreciate their support very much. Well done, well done. Were you surprised by the support you got from the councillors? Because I, I was reading the report from the meeting; it came right across the county f- uh, for your motion. It did. No, I was, uh, you know, I was overwhelmed by the support, and I would really like to thank all my colleagues. Firstly, on the Western Division, because it came through from our Western Division meeting to full council and for all the support at, at, at County Hall on, on the 22nd. And as, as I said, to our county mayor as well. OK, let us hope that they are, they are listening. And actually, just we, we got that sad news just before, as I came in this morning, John Bruton has passed away. Yeah, I know. And I'd, I'd really like to pass on my sympathies to Fanula and his, his family. I mean, he was a gentleman, a thorough gentleman. And the man had a, a spectacular brain. You know, yeah, he was, yeah. a, you know, a great man, a yeah. great man. Gifted, he was, he was a gifted, gifted man. he was, he was. All right, may and rest in Patricia, while I think of it, Neil Richmond asked me to pass on his regards to you as well. Oh, thank you very much. All right, Marie, All listen, right. thank you for that and uh, thanks thank for joining you, us. Uh, good morning thank to you. you. Bye, bye. Uh, morning. That is uh, Fine Gael Councillor Marie uh, O'Sullivan joining us from uh, Kinsale on that issue of the effect that that increase of the VAT rate, the effect that it's having on those small independent uh, businesses. Now, Monday of last week, I spoke with the chair of Charleville Community Forum. That was the head of a public meeting organised to discuss what was being done to make the main street of Charleville safer, especially for pedestrians following some very, very tragic deaths in recent years. Evelyn O'Keefe, the chair of the forum, once again uh, joins me. Good morning to you, Evelyn. 
morning, Patricia. Thanks for having us on again. Well, you're welcome. And the main reason we decided to bring you back was when we spoke last Monday week in advance of the meeting, you had gone through the fact that you'd invited a number of public representatives to uh, attend. And I was really taken aback to be told only one showed up. Yeah, um, unfortunately, this seems to be um, a regular occurrence here in Charvel with public meetings. We just, our public representatives don't seem to turn up to public meetings. They don't seem to be informing the public and the community what's actually happening at council level. You know, you see it across the county, in other parts of the county where you see the local councils feeding back to the people in the community what's actually happening. And we just seem to be left with a vacuum. And again, we only had one county councillor there and it came to our attention by a letter from the Cork County Council that they briefed um, the four county councillors that represent the Kentork Municipal Area in the second week of November. And yet, come January, we still had no um, details of what exactly was going ahead and when was going ahead, other than statements we were reading from the press, which said that um, the works would begin in January, but we had no idea what works. And the only thing that was on the paper was um, five tabletops. So, of course, that caused great concern in the community if that's all that was going to be happening after we were promised that, you know, a lot of work would be done. And by the way, did, has that work? Because, we, again, I was relying on newspaper reports as well. Did that work start last month? No, nothing at all happened. And that's why we actually waited till the 29th of January for the public meeting because, as you know, we've seen this on numerous occasions where we've been promised um, things to be done and nothing ever materialises. Um, so that's why it was the 29th of January. And again, um, we have, we all we had is apologies from our local representatives, both our three TDs and three of the county councillors. We actually had a county councillor to come all the way from the from my municipal district, but again, like he wouldn't have been briefed on what you know was going to be happening. And unfortunately, even the first public meeting that we had here in Charlie regarding the road, we had two Limerick county councillors come, and only one Cork county councillor that came. And it's very frustrating here. You know, we really need um, community engagement, and we're lacking it. And um, even by reading Cork County Council's statement, they said they, that the, in November when they gave the briefing, um, they gave suggestions of what could be done and it was given to the County Councils for consideration. And at that junction, we would have expected the County Councils to come back to the community, like we've seen in other areas where there is community meetings and the Council unveils the plans of what is going ahead and people at that point have engagement and they need a better buy-in from the community. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and, and you know, we're hearing from right from the government down uh, about how the local representatives need to engage with local people. I mean, we're seeing it. uh, I know it's a completely different issue, but we're seeing it with the the migrant uh, situation and how lack of information spreads disinformation. And then, you know, all sort of rumours start. Um, But but we need to keep those lines of communication uh, going. And was there a good turnout of local people to the meeting? There was, there was. Now, it wouldn't have been as big now as the meeting a year ago after the, the last two incidents, but that would be expected as temporary yeah, or, yeah. You know, and frustration was high at that point. But again, we're seeing the frustration and anger and, like, noting in concrete, you know, um, like money for feasibility for a ring road with no money for a ring road. You know, and we've seen this on numerous occasions. We have three or four plans of a lovely road and drawings and everything. Um, but again, it never materialises. And that's what we're feeling. And even in 2022, we had a big hurrah about a 5.2 million rural regeneration fund. And including that was going to be pedestrian crossing at the junction um, where we lost two people a year ago. And yes, 
still no sign of that money being spent and that was allocated in November 2022 and we've no final plans or drawings for that either and even one pedestrian crossing might have made a difference you know while we do deal with the the, the HDB issue and again like the county coroner made it very clear in his report that unless we remove the risk i.e. the HDBs um, we will never change the situation in Charleville we're only tinkering around the edges and um, we know from the N20 or M20 that it's years and years away and um, travel population is growing very rapidly. And like you mentioned, there are refugees. We actually will have one of the biggest refugee centres in travel within a couple of weeks. You know, we will be having the Ukrainian refugees moving in in the modular homes in travel. And that's going to bring over 252 residents. And extra I people in extra people either. extra people in into the town and nothing nothing has been done to remove even one HGV from the town and, and that's the biggest issue is the there doesn't seem to be any urgency to reduce the amount of HGVs no, not so. even the reduction of them, not the complete removal of them even, like the reduction of the risk would help. Um, and again, it's just, you know, frustration. And even, the, we, you know, we were delighted about the bus stop being moved and given a bus stop on its own. And, uh, you know, so it doesn't share it with a loading bay. But within a week, we had a statement from one county council saying that it was going to go in a certain place. And at the meeting then, we had another county council that came to the meeting and he said, oh, no, it's going to the other side of the town. So, again, even that isn't, you know, even the counties themselves aren't on the same page. So, obviously, it still isn't at the stage where there is a plan. Yeah, and I know know, I was reading that there's talk of changing two streets to turn left only. Is, Is that going down well with people? Um, it is, it is, and I suppose uh, you can understand the reason and the logic, I think, you know, from a safety point of view, I think they're right. But I think from the local point of view, I think it will cause frustration because a lot of parents from the CBSY school would use that to come up. Okay. So they, they would avoid the queue on the main road where now it kind of forces them back onto the N20 queue coming from the Limerick side, you know, which could add an extra half an hour on their commute to school. So I can understand that, but I can understand the safety measures. But, I, you know, the, the reasoning why we Behind it, and again, the residents of Holy Cross brought up the fact that they find now that the people can turn at the Four Wings Junction, that they come to basically a residential um, area instead. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, so that should be kind See, of see. They're all, they, yeah, but they're all the things that need to be teased out, and you can only tease those out at a public meeting where people are able to get their views across, and then there can be an explanation of why it's going to happen, and is there any alternatives to it? Yeah, and I think that's it. I think it's just a matter of, you know, if you had the council and, and the council councillors in a public meeting and shoulders they're drawn and give the reasoning and logic, logic of why they're doing this and why they're not doing that. And I think like that, they should treat people with a little bit more respect because I think people would understand it. they look, this is the safety reason, this is the safety reason why we're doing this, this and this. And, you know, people would get on board, but like we're left with a vacuum and a void of no real explanation. And within a week, you know, the, the, the changing of the bus stops, you know, and we're 10 months out from the, 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 the very tragic accident that happened last year. And, like, surely, like, it's something as simple as a bus stop and a bus location could have been organised by now. And it just doesn't seem to be happening. And, like, you know, we're promised now in February the works will commence. But I can guarantee we'll be here in March and nothing will happen again. And it's extremely frustrating. And um, Well, we had, an know, e- we had an email in from a listener. It was, it was one of the reasons that we we said we'd bring you back on, who, who clearly said that... It, People in Charleville feel abandoned almost. 
Yeah, that was brought up quite a number of times from people in the audience that night. They just feel like that we're lacking infrastructure completely for the last 20 years. Like when we just look across the county border in Patrick's Well, where they have four bus stops, you know, and you see across, you know, in Kamalak where they have a brand new schools and brand new fire station and lovely pedestrian crossings. And we're just scratching our head here. Like we can't even get a designated bus stop on its own or a bus shelter. Um, so we just, you know, and like when you look at the Belly McGurk roundabout um, situation there, that had to be come the worst junction in the country before something was done before something was done and we're in the same municipal district and again we're seeing it we're we're nearly one of the worst streets in Ireland for pedestrian death and it's something we don't want and like you know one one or two more deaths here in our main street and people just won't come in and that'll have an awful knock on effect on businesses it already is you know people are choosing not to come into Tarville and that's 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 not um, what anybody wants yeah, yeah. And you you can sense it. You can sense if people can avoid Charleville at all, they will because they know that what the backlog of traffic uh, is going to be like. And of course, ultimately, you know, the long term answer is uh, a relief road. Uh, but Evelyn, do you believe you will, you'll see a relief road in, in, in our own lifetime? <laughs> I don't know. I, I hope so. We, that's what we're fighting for. But, you know, realistically, like, you know, we're talking about the in 20, in 20 per 20 years. Um, and you know it's like we're getting all these great announcements and we're getting lovely drawings and we have a lovely website for the M20 and the M20 but again the millions and millions that have been pumped into this over the last 20 years we would have had a lovely ring road years ago we would have missed it how yeah, many lives yeah, we would have yeah. saved yeah. So, so how did you, what? Where do we go from here? The 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 Charleville Community Forum. Do you hope to meet with, say, executive of Cork County Council? Maybe meet with members of Trans- Transport Infrastructure Ireland? Can that be on the cards for you? Yeah, well, what we've asked is the only council that was there that night. We've asked him to That's go back Ian Doyle, and, by the way. We should, yeah, we should, we should call yeah. out Ian for, yeah. for attending. OK, you've asked Ian to do what? We've asked him to put a motion into Cork County Council to communicate and engage with the community in relation to the road safety measures. Because, you know, on the night he talked about phase one, phase two, phase three, but we've no idea what are in any of those phases, do you know? Um so and when they're happening so at least if we knew they were happening or when they were happening or if there was any issues that maybe is blocking one thing from happening maybe like that the community can get in, involved and help it move on to the next junction you know so just we've asked them to put a motion to um, to engage with the community on the issue of the road safety measures uh, as soon as possible Okay Okay listen the town is lucky to have the Charleville Community Forum you're, you're a great bunch uh, don't give up that's the that is the main message coming through from, from listeners this morning I, I, I can see it and a huge huge sense of frustration uh, on behalf of people locally but as you say we have to remember lives have been lost and this is to protect people in the future we don't want to see another life lost in uh, Charleville. Evelyn we will stay in contact with you thank you for that and look after yourself Thank you. Thanks All for right. joining us. Uh, good morning. That is Evelyn O'Keefe, who is chair of the Charleville Community uh, Forum. And I know uh, public representatives are busy and, and people did send their apologies and all of that. But just of all of the public representatives who were invited to attend the, the three uh, TDs um, and there's three councillors, I think only uh, only one uh, councillor to uh, attend. It just seems really, really unfortunate. And I can understand that sense. That, and we got it in, in a fantastic email that came into us uh, last week. Just that sense of people feeling almost abandoned in Charleville as if they're left uh, to to themselves to sort out these problems and of course they can't. 0818103103 John Paul and James taking your calls today and by the way just to follow on from 
uh, Councillor Marie O'Sullivan who uh, joined us a couple of moments ago when she was talking about the VAT rating. She was talking about her own um, Salvi's Cafe in uh, Kinsale. Jennifer was on uh, to say Councillor Marie O'Sullivan uh, with her cafe in Kinsale. She has a breakfast club for elderly people. I'm telling you, says Jennifer, that breakfast club has saved lives. She's one of the kindest, most caring people you'll ever meet. Isn't that lovely? I hope Marie is listening and she gets to hear that message. That is really, really nice. And then on the flip side, with everything going up and the cost of business going up, which is what Marie was ex- was explaining to us, uh, John is pointing out at his local uh, cafe, they were charging €3.90 Euro for a large cappuccino. This week, it's gone up to four forty, an increase of 50 cent. John thinks that's a disgrace. I won't pay that for a cappuccino. It's daylight robbery. But John, that's exactly the point that Marie is trying to make out. I mean, Marie was speaking about her electricity bill has gone from 1600 uh, to 5400 The cost of doing business has gone up and then their VAT rate has gone up by 50%. There's only so much give that the business can do and there's only so many ways that they can cover some of those costs but it gets to the stage where they literally can't make money unless they increase costs. I mean there isn't a cafe in the world wants to put up the cost of their coffee by 50 cent but believe me they probably have absolutely no choice. And Pat from Fomoy has been on to the programme uh, this morning to say over the weekend he saw a man uh, bring in three big bags of empty cans wanting them to put into the deposit and return scheme but of course none of the cans had the return logo on it so he had to go away tail between his legs and carry his three big bags of cans home with him. Pat says it doesn't matter how many times you tell people something they just don't seem to listen they don't seem to get the message. Uh, this particular man thought he had a big load of cash coming in with him uh, with these empty bottles and uh, empty cans. I, yeah, I, I saw somebody else uh, do the same thing in another uh, supermarket yesterday where they thought, but it has to have the return, well, it has to have the return logo on it. I have to have paid a deposit. I know some of them, it's the barcode. When the machine reads the barcode, it will say that you have actually paid the uh, deposit. But we were saying that uh, to people. And I remember when we started to d- discuss the deposit and return scheme, we heard from people people who were starting to collect their cans and bottles thinking that they could make a fast buck but with the machines the, the intelligence inside in those reverse vending machines they know the bottles that either have the return logo or have paid the deposit on it because we're being guaranteed if you pay a deposit you will get your money back but no if you've gathered up cans and bottles at home thinking that you're going to get your, 20, your 15 cent or your 25 cent you're not. Actually just on the deposit and return scheme I don't know if it's tomorrow uh, or not, but I was talking with uh, John Paul before we came on air this morning because I've I've spotted that disability organisations are saying that the deposit and return scheme is effectively a stealth tax for people with disabilities. There are people with disabilities who will not be able to return the uh, campaigners. So Lee Garrett, who's a fantastic woman, we've spoken with her before. She was the HSE confidential uh, recipient at one stage. She's a thalidomide uh, survivor and she's a wheelchair uh, user. And she's the one coming out uh, saying that for many people in wheelchairs, they won't be able to get they'll pay the deposit but they won't be able to get the bottles and cans uh, back to get their deposits back so we'll hopefully speak with uh, Lee if not tomorrow certainly another day on the programme but that is an issue now that is coming to light with the deposit and return scheme and then Elaine has been on uh, to say this is on the COVID uh, inquiry which is due to start sometime this year we're still waiting on the terms of reference Elaine is really hoping that the COVID inquiry will give some closure to the many families around the country who lost loved ones uh, during the 
pandemic. Yeah, and I'm already we're starting to see families speaking out and sharing their stories in advance of the COVID inquiry. And I'm really hoping that the families get to have their say and get their voices heard. And over the weekend, I was reading about the daughter of a man who died in a nursing home. Now, this was during the first wave of the pandemic and she's urging the government to please listen to the families of the bereaved as they prepare for the COVID-19 inquiry. She's Vivian McNally. And her father, Dominic, was a patient in Delgan House in County Louth. And it was during a severe outbreak of the disease. And actually, Delgan House was one of the places I remember we spoke about here on the programme. 23 residents lost their lives to uh, COVID and the the situation in that Dundalk care facility. It got so bad. And I say this was in the first wave. This was in the early days of uh, 2020, the early days of the pandemic. It got so bad that it had to be taken over by a hospital group. And it was the only only nursing home in Ireland that that actually happened to during the pandemic. Now, it's understood so far, this is what we know about the terms of reference. Uh, We know that it's going to be a non-statutory review into the handling of the pandemic. Um, and the terms of reference are due in the next couple of weeks. But the fact it's non-statutory, that means nobody can be forced to come and give evidence. The review we know so far will analyse the government's response. It'll also look at how hospitals and nursing homes uh, coped. And obviously it's also going to look on the effect that the pandemic had on society and, of course, on the uh, economy. Now, we do know what we've been told it will have in inverted commas particular focus on nursing homes. Now, what exactly does that entail? What What does that exactly mean? And I think for the families of loved ones who lost loved ones in those nursing homes, the particular focus for them is going to be the loss of their loved ones. Now, Mr. McAnally, along with other, um, or sorry, Miss Vivian, uh, along with other family members who lost loved ones, now calling on the government to ensure they will be able to participate in the review proceedings, that there will be powers to compel witnesses, power to compel documents, and the proceedings are held in uh, public. I think the fact it's non-statutory, it's not going to have power to compel witnesses unless that changes between now and when we get the terms of uh, reference. She said so much has been brushed under the carpet. There's now a responsibility on everyone but especially those in power to unveil the truth so that the many mistakes that will made will be avoided into the future and to make sure that they'll never happen again. Uh, she says it, none of this will bring our loved ones back but what we can do is we can honour their memories by ensuring that none, none of them died in vain. She said we must fight for justice. We must be the voices of those who are no longer here here to be heard. Now her dad uh, Dominic was a brewery worker. He was a sportsman. He won cross country running medals. Now he ha- had been living with dementia in Delgan House and he'd been living there for over two years before his death and he died in April of 2020 and the really sad part for his family and for Vivian's family was he died alone and it was just four days after his 80th birthday and she said many of us lost our parents and other loved ones she said in the worst circumstances imaginable she said I found my father lying dead in his bed because obviously the family were contacted Uh, and then she went in and she said he had been there for hours all on his own and uh, she said one member of staff said to her they're dropping like flies she said things like that she's never going to be able to forget she said we couldn't protect our family members when they needed us she said I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy 
What we do now, however, is shine a light on what was going on back then. She said a public inquiry is the only way we will get you the truth about what happened to our loved ones. Uh, Vivian McInally, who has been campaigning for answers about what happened in Delgan a Nursing Home for over three years, said she still struggles thinking about how much her father must have suffered in those final days. And she said due to staff sickness at the home, there was only two nurses at the time looking after up to 71 patients. She said the conditions were awful. She said my father was completely isolated from his loved ones. She said it felt like a perfect storm. Everything that could go wrong did go wrong. And she lost her beloved father and that's just... So wrong. In, so, but then to get the call and to go back in and, you know, she, she gets back in then when she couldn't get in to see him when he was alive and she gets to see him lying dead where he'd been for a number of hours. Truly, truly uh, tragic. So let's hope, as I say, a number of those families are starting to speak out. And I think if enough of them do speak out, I think the government, as they're putting the terms of reference together, will have to uh, listen and will have to make sure that their voices are included and not only included, but heard as part of our COVID inquiry. 0818 103 103. Our lines are open. C103 Jobs. Medical administrator slash receptionist is required. It's for a busy GP practice in Newmarket. Now, previous experience in medical admin would be an advantage, although it's not essential. CVs, please, to Elaine at apptrasnamc.com. Healthcare assistants with QQI or FeeTech Level 5 in older persons care wanted for Nazareth House in Mallow. Now, experience in older persons, palliative and dementia care would be an advantage. CVs to hr.mallow at nazarethcare.com. Meals on Wheels uh, in Mallow are looking for a cook. Now, you'll be required to work two to three days per week. The contact is Eleanor at 085, sorry, at 087. 2891641 and Rota Industries there in the North Cork area they're looking for service engineer full-time position CVs please to Julie at Rota.ie you'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more this is C103 Cork today on C103 with McCarthy Insurance Group proud sponsors of the Cork GAA Club Football Leagues and Championships want great advice? you know who to talk to cmig.ie now today is the 6th of February and today is Safer Internet Day it's celebrated in approximately 180 countries worldwide and it's become a landmark event in the online safety calendar so to discuss why a day like this is important and how we can all use the internet more safely. I'm joined by Avril Rona. Now, Avril is Project Manager of Internet Safety at Trend uh, Micro uh, Global. Uh, good morning to Avril. Good morning. Thank uh, you for having me on this morning. Well, you're very welcome. Now, the internet, we all know, is an absolutely yeah. wonderful t- uh, t- a tool. And we sometimes can't remember, I think, how we lived uh, without it. But do we yeah. always need to keep in mind the dangers that come with it? Absolutely. And, you know, a Safer Internet Day is great to kind of highlight and have conversations like this. Um, but we need to do it every day of the week, whether you're a parent in the school ground, keeping check with other parents um, and having conversations with your kids as well is really important. When used responsibly, 
the internet is a wonderful place. And as each new day dawns, there is new technology that's evolving really fast. And, you know, what's important is that we need to make ourselves informed if we choose to use technology, what that technology is, what the, the safety measures are. Always think safety settings, privacy settings, you know, all of those things are really, really important, whatever you choose to use uh, when you're online. And that's to protect your personal information because your personal information is invaluable to you. And it is also valuable to others out there who may not have your best interests at heart. And um, and that's why, you know, at Trim Micro, we do a lot of education and community for years. This is our 16th year now. Well done. It? Well done. Um, with kids, teens, we've, we've actually got... Uh, 35 primary school students from Skullcreasa in Blarney upstairs right now and 15, 20 transitioners from Skullvura in Blarney at our boot camps and um, the transitioners are learning how to deliver it into the primary school and it's all about having the conversation and about being informed mm. and about knowing, you know, yes, the technology is fantastic. Yes, look at the new stuff coming down the track but always bear in mind that your your personal information, your privacy, and uh, is invaluable, and setting setting settings all the way. Yeah, and that's you know because we've seen unfortunately an increase in scams, and that's obviously one of the yeah. bad and the, the the dangers of the internet. And you know, and you are important about you are so right when you highlight how important it is that we look after our personal information. I mean, you'd never leave your your passport lying around. You'd never leave your 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 bank cards you know out on a table. In a, in, in a restaurant and, and walk away and leave them for somebody else to pick up. So, you know, we're mindful of those kind of things. We need to be, though, as mindful about yeah. it online. And that's why something like um, passwords. And, uh, and yeah. I know I, I was only recently talking to a family member who should remain nameless, who was saying that she has the one password for everything. And I was saying how crazy that is. You sh- you, you, passwords. Talk to me about passwords and how okay. important passwords are. So, uh there's there's actually two things when it comes to passwords. So one is it has to be long and strong. So basically it has to be 12 to 13 digits long and not just numbers or letters. It has to be a mix of characters. And um, if someone was to guess your password, that means they're in. They're into your account. So if it's your Gmail or your whatever accounts that you have, if they guess your password because they know you and they, they guess the things that you like and they can guess it, um, then they're in. So what's really important is that passwords need to be unique, but there are systems you can put in place that they're unique, but that you know what those passwords are. If you forget your password, you can do fast password, forgot password, or uh, you know, I had two workshops with Age Action before Christmas, uh, two wonderful groups of um, uh, adults uh, with me, and we discussed passwords. And some people, different people have different ways of saving their passwords. Some have them written down on a piece of paper and hidden away somewhere at home, and only they know what they are. But if you happen to change that password and you don't update the sheet, that can cause a problem. So you need to be vigilant yeah. with that. There's no right or wrong way. Some people have them written in a Word document and locked with a lock on their device so that nobody can get in into that. And that's where they have them. Some people use password managers um, and a password manager. There are multiple ones. It's like shopping for house insurance. <laughs> uh, there are multiple password managers out there. You just have to do your research as to what is it you want. But ultimately, a password manager is where you have one password to remember. 
and make it long. And the password manager remembers all of your passwords and encrypts them so nobody can get in. Now, no system is 100% safe and secure. Okay. None out there. But it's a matter of having a system that works for you and making sure that your passwords are long and strong. Because if someone breaks into your account, they can cause havoc and they can take a lot of personal information. And the same with kids and gaming. It's prevalent because they'll take all the gaming things that are built up by the kids and um, all the credits. And it's it, it gets bigger and bigger as you get older um, and the more content that you have and the more personal information stored. Um, but passwords aren't the only thing. We all use Sorry, just stay, just, just, just yeah? stay on passwords for a minute. Somebody said, how often should you change your password, even if it is long and strong? I, I was quoted now, don't laugh at me. I know you will. I was quoted there about two years ago saying passwords are like underpants. You have to change them often and never share them. <laughs> and at the amount of people that have said to me, I always remember what you said. <laughs> you never share them and you always change them. Right. I would say three months. Okay. Three but you don't wear your underwear for three months, Avril. You want to be pains to point that Change. out. Change, yes. Oh, my. Oh yes, please. Uh, I, someone said to me afterwards, would you not have used toothbrush? Anyway, um, okay, we live and learn. But people, yeah. it was memorable. People remember the other yeah. So, you know, make it, make it strong and long and change it, I would say, every three months. Change it regularly and have your own system for, for passwords. You know, a mix of numbers and and, uh, special characters in the middle, break it up. The words can't be in a dictionary. Maybe use a phrase like a song, the first sentence of a song, but break it up in the middle. But do something. Um, And if your password is the same in every single account that you have, Mm -hmm. that means if I get into one of your accounts, I'm into all of them. And if I am a cyber, uh, if I'm a threat actor who is out for not your best interest, then bingo, I've hit the jackpot. Um, so even if you have a strong password, cyber criminals, you know, if they're adamant to get into your account, they'll spend days running different scripts and, and um, deploy different tactics to break into your account. Two-factor authentication. I know it sounds like a complicated thing, but we all do it. If you have a banking app, then you do it. When you put in your special uh, pin online, you're then sent a code to your text or your email or use biometrics facial recognition because that app, that banking app, for example, okay, you put in your, your pin and your name, but it needs to make sure it's really you. So it will send you a code to your text or your Gmail or your email account. And you have to key that code into your app as well in order for that banking app to allow you in. Yeah, it's annoying. It's, sure it's, it's, it's annoying for sure. But, you know, but, but you know, it's the bank and the it's company you're sure dealing no one with. Else gets in. Yeah, keeping yeah. you safe. So it's like keeping a, you safe. Think of it like a double door lock on your, yeah. on your yeah. and on then, everything. And it's protecting your information because we are the product on these apps. Every app you download, the first thing you need to do is accept the terms and conditions. And those terms and conditions allow them to do whatever they want with your content, your your data, your behavior. And that's all for sales and marketing Mm. at best to advertise and target you. Um, And it's sold on to other third party companies. So when you download an app and you accept those terms and conditions, you own everything that you do there but you're allowing them to do whatever they want with it. And it's so important to remember that. And thinking about what you put there, what information you're sharing, and never assume it's just staying on the device or staying, it'll be, you know, there's, 
it's backed up on servers and in the cloud. It's, it's, it's definitely in other places. So thinking those strong passwords and having that two factor, you just go into your settings and you'll find it under security. Sometimes it's called a two step or two factor or multiple, uh, verific uh, ver multiple step verification, um, but that's what it is and you set it up. Okay. Um, now, children, and, I, obviously yeah. when we're talking about, you know, say for Internet Day, parents straight away, very concerned about their um, uh, children online. And I was, mm. um, Cyber Safe Kids have a, a survey yes. out today, which I uh, mm. was astounded by. My jaw dropped when I saw mm. uh, 25, 24% of six-year-olds own their own smartphone. I was just totally... Uh, taken aback uh, by that uh, and 20% and of parents feeling the benefits of the internet and social media outweigh the risk of uh, their children and only 28% of parents use parental controls. Talk to me, wh what are your top tips to parents about keeping their children safe online? So I'm actually doing a parent talk tonight on kids. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Teens and screen time. That's you know I do one every month, and people are very welcome to join. But you know, depending on the age of your child, dictates how you have to pivot and, and evolve to support your child. And like we all know, as a parent, it's our job to safeguard them. But that's whether it's online or offline. You know, their security, their privacy is so important. But they don't understand that which is why it's really important for us to be informed and educated. Even the, what we just talked about well ago, the security aspect. If, if your child is the right age and they're ready for a game, the first thing you need to do when you, when you download the app is go straight to settings, strong passwords, two-factor authentication, and straight into settings with your child to make sure that they understand why you're doing it and you're exploring and learning together and researching. So our number one piece of advice and, and Trend Micro is a 35 years cybersecurity expert in the field. Our number one piece of advice to parents is the relationship with your child. There is no piece of technology that will ever take away the role of a parent in a child's life. And you know your child best. And, you know, as they evolve, technology is so beneficial and so important. You need look no further than children with special needs and assisted technology and the role that plays. It, it allows children that have uh, special needs um, 
to be able to compete at the same level at junior and leaving cert with audio to text and all sorts of things. So technology can provide some wonderful benefits to us when used responsibly. However, there are also risks and that's where we need to be informed. So if your child is five and they want something, if your child is 10, if your child is 15, there's a different engagement with your child at different ages. So you're not going to discuss rules with a five-year-old. You'll have to set those rules with them. Who are they allowed? What are they allowed to play with? What device? You know, and then are the safety settings, like that 24% of six-year-olds having their own smartphones. In the ideal world, those kids only have access to maybe one or two things on that device. And it's completely locked down with parental controls and safety settings. But even then, nothing is 100% secure. So you need to always be having your eye over them, watching them, keeping an eye on what they're doing, listening to what's going on and having the conversation with them every step of the way. Growing up with your child online, you have to do the time. You have to put in that time. So the relationship with your child is the first thing. All the tech tools, all the settings, that's there to support you and complement you in your role as a parent with your child. And through that relationship with your child, and listen, I know more than anyone else, as your child gets older into teenage years, they're exploring, they're challenging, they, they, they're rebelling, they, you know, but they do need boundaries set and they do need those limits. And, and you are that's the, you're, where we you are the parent. And this, and, and, and you know, you're going to get the, the argument. Uh, my, my child knows more about it than, than I do. Is that no longer an excuse? You cannot outsource this to somebody else. Yeah. I, I've done parent talks where at the end of the parent talk, I've had a parents come up to me and hand me devices and ask me to set them up. Like it, it's not it's an ex, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. You need to just if you can't do it, get some, a sister, a brother, a, a, a partner, somebody who knows and make sure that the settings are there. But the relationship you and I can have conversations with kids teens they're upstairs now at the moment having it and they want to talk about the internet you want them to be savvy you don't want them falling for a scam and giving all their game credit away you want them to be savvy and smart when they're online so that by the time they reach 18 they're off with their own devices and they know the first thing they download is they go straight to settings they know when they read a a really alluring headline online they know this could be possibly a misinformation. I need to do some research before I believe this, not to mind pass it on to anyone else because it could be harmful. You know, we need all of these conversations with kids and the best way to do it is around the dinner table. Yeah. No devices. Yeah, no devices. No devices. And actually on on the no devices, somebody says, how do you strike a healthy balance if you feel your child is spending too much time online? Now that's the problem that a lot of parents will be nodding and saying, yeah, that's the issue in our house. What's too much time online? So, depending on the age of the child. So, let's take... uh, 13 year old who you feel you don't see anymore and the when you do engage with them perhaps the the conversation is very the mood the tone everything is is just not healthy and you're concerned I think a parent knows when knows the difference between healthy relationship with your device and digital well-being and when things are not so healthy, you you can see the changes in your child, their mood, their form, how they interact with you. Um, and their, you know, even their performance in school, their concentration, their energy levels. And that's when that's the red flag for you to say, OK, 
we need to sit down. And I would recommend that you sit down and, you know, if you do have a partner to sit down with your child and, you know, it can't be in the height of an argument about the device. It cannot be. So it has to be in a place where it's relaxed. There's no drama and you sit down and talk to them as the device is not in the room and talk to them about what you're observing, the behaviors you're seeing how much you love them, how much you care about them and the concern you have. And, you know, we've got some amazing research that I'm going to actually show share tonight as well um, on, you know, what teens think about their device time, what young people think about their device time and the impact it's having on them. And sleep is so important because if you don't get enough sleep, it impacts your mood, it impacts your diet, you'll eat sugar and rubbish, it impacts your concentration. If you can't concentrate, you start eating more sugar it impacts your anxiety levels if you're anxious it makes your anxiety worse so the lack of sleep and if you're on your device that is really serious so talking to your child about that is really really important to highlight what you're seeing and to ask them how they feel about it so that it's a part it's a you're talking together they're being heard as well as it's not and a you're being heard. Yeah, yeah. Cause and this, you're being heard. This, I suppose, is the first and finding generation. A middle ground. This is the first generation yeah. that's grown up. They've never known anything else uh, but, yeah. but technology. Yes. And like I, the statistics I have for tonight, 70% of, of teens, when they look at parental rules set by parents, 70% of them um, feel that they are of benefit to them. And that they're reasonable. Yeah, children want children want those boundaries. They uh, need but, boundaries. But, but, they but that survey I referenced uh, earlier: forty-five percent of children aged ten are allowed to use their smartphone in their bedrooms without any parental control. Yeah, and ter- I know from say I've I was on the board of Save a Safe Kids. They're an amazing organisation, and they do annual research every year. Thirty-one percent have unrestricted access to the online world. It's crazy. That means thirty-one percent of children in Ireland are not monitored online. That means they have access to absolutely everything, everything you can imagine. And that is worrying. Now, uh, in screen time, would you believe you don't have to buy anything? You're, if you have an Android device or an Apple device or you know, uh, Microsoft, whatever devices you have, there are settings in there. There are parental controls in there. There are screen time tools. Like my daughter can't download a new app without talking to me. Well, she can actually I get a message on my phone saying um, she would like to download this app and straight away okay yeah. we need to talk about that yeah so she can't do it without your permission and without your knowledge yeah 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 uh, okay we talk- can set time limits for different things like Snapchat you can say okay look TikTok what are you doing on it what are you scrolling all the time that's mindless are you being creative are you using it for quality stuff are you researching are you you know screen time is such a great area you know we you've got it's the teddy era the whole screen time thing you know but kids are listening to music on it they're, they've got their Fitbit they're Kindle they're you know they're they're doing their whole Work. Yeah, there's so, there's, there technology. are so many positives, but somebody's making the point yeah. that parents need to look at their own habits uh, as well. Listener says, I'm Absolutely. sick. I'm sick of being out in restaurants and watching yes. families where the mother and the father are constantly on their phones, not interacting with their children. Children learn by what they see, which is which is and very, not only that a table. I've seen a table of eight and where all of them had devices and there was no conversation. Yeah, it me nuts. I think it's an it's an easy one. You can have screen free mealtimes. If, you know, it's hard to get mealtimes at some state, you know, sometimes in the week, but 
screen-free mealtimes, no devices, and also a screen-free night, a green night. Like just, you know, it's not about getting them off it. It's about getting them on something else. Yeah. And what are the things they love around it? I mean, throw them into every sport you can imagine. Just get them active and moving and doing different things. Okay. Keep them busy. Okay, now you've uh, just to finish off. Tell me about this free. This is a the webinar you're hosting tonight is free. So anybody listening, everything we uh, do, everything we do for for, parents and and kids. Well done. So who is it aimed at, and how do people register? Parents, educators, uh, trendmicro.com forward slash internet internet safety. Just go to the events page for Ireland. I, I think um, I can send you the, I think I sent it actually. On to Jean-Paul. Um, already the okay, link. If have, you can yeah. share that out somehow yeah. for parents. But it's trendmicro.com forward slash internet dash safety. And go to the events page and you just register. And it'll be recorded as well. And it'll be hosted on that very same page. So if you're busy tonight, you can just watch it back. And it's being done with sign language as well, Irish sign language to support. I saw that. that I saw And well done. Well done on that. That's, uh, yeah, that's great. An excellent initiative for 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 families um, who whose ISL is is their first language. So so um, yeah. well done. An opportunity for people to ask questions, Afra. Absolutely. So right. I, I like I've got one hour. Can you imagine? Like there's, I could talk for five weeks about <laughs> every different topic. So it, an hour of talk time for me imparting as much as I can to you, everything from Brilliant. just some data, evidence based research, and then practical tips. And then I have some demonstrations on how what screen time looks like on an iOS, what it looks like on uh, screen time on YouTube, what, what, you know, on Android devices, on TikTok and Snapchat. But then I stop after the hour and it's a, a half an hour. I will stay as long as there's questions. Brilliant, brilliant. Trendmicro.com. Avril, pleasure as always to talk to you. Thank you for that. I know that we'll speak again. But Lovely thanks for joining us. You. Good morning to you. Bye bye. That is Avril uh, Ronan of Trend Micro uh, on for the day that's in it. Safer Internet Day. I have to say, I was so excited to hear that the super talented Imelda May is bringing her show Mother of All the Beans to the Everyman Theatre this summer for a week long run. And by the way, tickets are all already on sale. And I'm delighted to say Imelda May takes time out to speak to us this morning. Good morning to you, Imelda. Good morning, Patricia. How are you? I'm very good. And I've got to fess up at the very start because I've been warned not to fangirl you. But I'm a huge <laughs> fan of yours. So I was quite excited all weekend that I'd be talking to you today. Now, oh, this, I'm delighted. Now, this, ju- this show is based, I, I'm right in saying that this is based on the book by the same name. Wasn't that book written by her son, Brian? And it was Taped That's Conversations right. by Kathleen, wasn't it, that he based it on? That's right. So he recorded her and um, and uh, wrote a book based upon that. And then Peter Sheridan has written this beautiful play based on the book. So lo- the the words that I'm speaking with in this play, they're not they're not picked out of the air. They're her words, they're her story, you know. So that's kind of that's lovely for me. Something, to be able to tell something her story. very special the about that. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. And how much did you know about Kathleen being before you came to this production? Not enough. Not enough. Um, I knew I knew of her, but I didn't know to the extent and of her brilliance. And, uh, and I want everybody to see this play because you'll fall in love with Kathleen the way I have done. She's just an incredible woman. And then you realise why Brendan was so brilliant, you know, and her family, they're an incredible family. So, you know, often it'll be the the mammy and we never hear about them and uh, she's she's just like her brother was um, Pat Carney wrote the National Anthem 
she um, she used to be hanging out with and was really good friends. And some say had a little, maybe a, a little fling. They they had a little grow, and anyway, <laughs> they certainly had a grow with her and Michael Collins. Um, and uh, she was with. She hung around. She worked for Mod Gone, the Constance Marcy. She got her the job with Mod Gone. She used to chat with them. James Joyce's Nora Barnacle used to tell her everything. So she's all these things, but she also lived through like First World War, Second World War, um, Easter Rebellion, Civil War, um, while trying to raise a family and uh, was raised herself in an orphanage. Yeah, and, I, I uh, didn't, so I didn't realise until I was, I was reading about her over the weekend. She spent six years in, in Goldenbridge uh, Orphanage, which, and she attributes that she became an avid reader while she was there. She became an avid reader, yeah. And she, from as she said herself, she didn't see the outside from the day she went in until Christmas Eve. God help her. And she was there for. Her mother said they were going to be there for a little while, and they ended up there for for years and years and years, and they never saw outside. And that was her beginning, you know. And then she had she had her own family, and but she was she was feisty, you know, and funny. So the story is great, and it's so resilient as a as a mother as well, raising all the children. Um, you know, and while her husbands were sometimes locked up, she was married a couple of times. So she's just she's just brilliant and full of life and full of love and love to sing songs. So I break into songs in this play not because it's a musical, um, but because that's what Kathleen did. <laughs> she tell you a story, and in the record, she just breaks into song. You know, for a song that matches the story she's telling. So that's that's what I do within this play. I keep talking and then breaking into song. And because it's a one-woman play, I'm kind of acting out all the different characters, and so it comes to life. Um, is that is that do. daunting to to be on stage on your own? Yes. <laughs> 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 yes. I'm, I I don't think do things by halves. I jumped in the deep end, you know. Um, like uh, um, I got great advice from my friend Lisa Duan, um, a great actress, and uh, she's uh, she does a lot of Samuel Beckett stuff. She does plays one woman shows, and she said you really took the bull by the horn, didn't you, by jumping straight in? And it's daunting having to learn like an hour and forty minutes of dialogue. And I look like a mad woman walking around trying to learn. It took me months to learn it and every time I was in the car on the plane walking the dog I'm just chatting away from myself brought you, brought you back to school when we used to have to learn off all the poets the, the poetry um, and no. I, I saw on a poster that um, Rosaline Lenahan she also mm. helped out with this production no not so much she she did the original play and so um, and that was I think 35 years ago so I'm delighted to bring it back delighted yeah. that uh, that um, that I was asked to do this. Yeah, Peter is a phenomenal writer and he, he he's a great storyteller and, and a great director as well. As, as He's directed me really, really well and uh, we worked, worked really well together. But his, his storytelling is phenomenal. Would you like to have met Kathleen Bean? Oh my God, yes. Yeah. But I feel weirdly that I know her. I feel like she's crawled under my skin, you know? <laughs> I really feel like I've gotten to know her because I'm, 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 being her, you know, I'm channeling her each night and I, I, I chat with her and I'll say, come on, Kathleen, I'm here, I'm your vessel, use me. I'm telling your story. Go, come on, go for it. 
jump into me body. We're going. We're doing this. <laughs> so I chatted to her, and um, her family all came to see the play, and uh, they all loved it and got the thumbs up and said we got loads of loads of whole essence in there. So ah, that's sweet. I'm hoping she'd be ha- happy with it, you know. Yeah, and I, I love, you know, the, the the fact that you mentioned she was, uh, um, by all accounts, of, well, we know she was a personal friend of uh, Michael Collins. Um, I think she would love the idea of you bringing the show to Cork, to his home. Oh, God. 100%, yes. She'd want everybody to know. Oh, and, and by the way, the play is, it's, um, it's, it's, it's all, it brings all the emotions to you. It's everything. It's sad and it's, informative and it'll make you cross at times and, and it's really informative telling you of our history and our culture but not from like a school way of learning from a really personal point of view that you actually see how our history and what was happening affected one family, one woman and how she had to cope with that with feeding her children and you know it, it really shows you from such a human point of view what was going on. And I've had so many people walk away going, I never got that before. I'd read about it, but it never hit home with me how much that would affect people or why this happened. So it's very informative, but it's also, it's hilarious. There's loads. Yeah, that's all, she was such a storyteller. She'd tell all these great, hilarious stories that you wouldn't believe. Wouldn't believe. Like Peter Sheridan said to me that when the production went on with Rosaline in America years ago, Somebody reviewed it and said this that was um some of it was the so- stories were farcical and they should have stuck more to truth and he said they didn't realise that it was all true. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And and the fact that the, the the tapes conversations were there, you know, none of this was made up. As you say, this yeah. is Kathleen being at her very best. And I know you had you had huge sellout runs uh, in Dublin. Yeah. Is this your first time travelling with it? Yes, it is. Okay, yes. So I'm delighted to be bringing it to Cork and uh, see how he is all... Well, we're all, we're, down there, you well, know, we're all looking forward to it. I think it's because uh, I know any review I read of it was just outstanding. Outstanding. We expect nothing less from Arimelda. So it's I Tuesday. I think you'll forgive me. Uh, you forgive all the Dublin stories in it. Oh. And you'll, you'll, <laughs> and you'll, you'll, uh, we'll, We'll just, we'll, you can move past that. We will. <laughs> we, we will indeed. It's the mother of all beings. It's Tuesday the 30th of July to Saturday the 10th at the Everyman and uh, the tickets the are available. It's theatre, by the it's way. It's brilliant. Have you, have you played there? Have you played there before? I think I have. I, I think, think I have. I've certainly been there many times. I love it. I yeah, love it. it's gorgeous. It's and gorgeous. I love going to Cork. My, um, my great granny was a Cork woman. Was she? She was indeed. I know. And was it love brought her to Dublin? Yes. Yeah. Fell in love with a job. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, uh, we love having you back in Cork in the summer, Imelda. Real pleasure speaking to you. Thank you for that and thanks for taking the time out. Oh, thank you. Good morning Have to you. Bye bye. Bye bye. On the deposit and return uh, scheme. They've provided some clarity on the confusion around people being charged for bottles and cans that don't have the return logo. Now, this came up on Friday when we were speaking with the return group and we thought that you would only get charged 
the deposit if it had the return logo but it seems there was a number of people who were going in we were told no it was the barcode and they've come back to us and they say at the moment they, we are still in this transition uh, period so the barcodes on the bottles can be registered for the deposit return which will incur the charge but then you can return it the ones that aren't registered won't incur a charge but obviously then they can't be returned either so it is the actual machine that you put it into the reverse vending machine that will read whether there was a deposit paid uh, or not so they return say that for some time there will be ones uh, floating around that won't have the return logo on it but the barcodes will have already been uh, registered so they are guaranteeing people that once you pay a deposit you will get it back now from the 1st of June the only bottles available will be the ones with the return logo and the uh, barcode so because I and I particularly want to get that across because I don't want people going into shops and then berating the poor shop assistant because the return logo isn't on it and they're getting charged either the 15 cent or the 25 cent it's the barcode itself will actually log whether you've paid the deposit or not. On Bank Holiday Madness and Driving, John was on. He was at a removal yesterday and he was coming back down the Cork Road. So the traffic was extremely busy at the time and he said there was a guy passed him out doing absolutely crazy speeds. He was flashing the lights behind John to tell him to get out of the way and to move in. And then he said coming up to the Burnford Junction where there's two lanes, a car was coming down outside of him just before the lanes merge. And he said in the mirror he could see a black Jeep that he thought was getting so close that he was going to hit him. Another car was behind doing the very same. The Jeep actually passed him on the barrier, but he says it was too close for comfort. He had to, in the end, I had to move over to let him by. He's afraid that there's going to be a lot more people injured or killed on our roads sooner rather than later if people don't slow down and become a lot more responsible when they're out and about driving. And the junction going into uh, Inishkey Village, there are potholes uh, in a skiing village. Um, there's potholes there that has damaged two tyres, says the listener. Also, the road by Clownamara Bridge. The road has been closed for two weeks last summer to repair the bridge. Nothing's been done and now it's falling down. A lot of lorries use that road. So there's a number of roads that need work, basically, is what people are saying to us. 0818 103 103. Our lines are open. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council making Cork County the place to live, work, visit and invest in. See corkcoco.ie. The Mallow Men's uh, Shed, they meet every Tuesday, so the meeting today. They also meet Wednesdays and Thursdays between 2 and 5 on each of the afternoons. They're at the rear of La Cayla Family Centre on Fair Street in Mallow and new members are welcome to come along and meet the gang at the Men's Shed anytime. Mallow Active Retirement Association, they've got their AGM. That's going to go ahead today at the Mercy Centre in Mallow. An introduction to gardening is of course starting in the Q Centre in Mallow. Now it starts on Tuesday the 20th of February and it will continue every Tuesday for from 10am to 12.30. If you'd like to re- register, you can contact Brendan Glynn on 022 55452. Shambhali Bingo is on tonight at 8. That's 
in Shambhalimore Community Centre, while Bantir Bingo is cancelled tonight, and that's as a mark of respect to their chairman, Dan Toomey, on the sad passing of his wife, Margaret. May she rest in peace. Court today on C103. With McCarthy Insurance Group, proud sponsors of the Cork GAA Club Football Leagues and Championships. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. Earlier today, the former Taoiseach and leader of, of uh, former leader of Fine Gael, John Bruton, has died aged 76, following, according to his family, a long uh, illness. He was elected to the Dáil to represent Meath in 1969. He was Taoiseach from 1994 to 1997, where, of course, led the Rainbow Coalition government of Fine Gael, Labour and the Democratic Left. He was leader of Fine Gael from 1990 up to the 31st of January 2001. Though he was re-elected to the Dáil in May of 2002, but then resigned his uh, seat in October of 2004 and was appointed as the US ambassador to the United States the following month. To remember John Bruton, I'm joined by two local Fine Gael uh, TDs and they join me to share their uh, memories this morning. Michael Creed for Cork Northwest and David Stanton of Cork East. Um, good afternoon, gentlemen. You're welcome. Hello. Um, Michael, if I can um, start with you. I mean, you were first elected in 1989, which would have been just a year before uh, John Bruton took over as leader of Fine Gael. Was he someone who was very influential in your earlier career? Yeah, influential and and in some ways, given the giant that he was of domestic and indeed international politics, but certainly within Fine Gael, a giant, um, almost an intimidatory figure for somebody starting off in politics. Um, uh, John was, uh, you know, as, as all the tributes that have been paid to him, was, was quite the colossus. Uh, you know, this this bubbling uh, fountain of, of, of intellectual um, ability, applying that to the daily challenges of politics. Um, you know, some people have this perception, I suppose, of, of, of John Bruton um, as, you know, the arch-typical Fine Gael privilege, but anything, nothing could be further from the truth. He, he, like, he was old-fashioned and decent in his politics, um, always seeking to apply uh, the resources of the state to the betterment of, 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 of his uh, citizens. And, um, you know, it was a privilege to have known him and my, my deepest sympathy to... Finul and his family and indeed to our colleague uh, Richard Bruton uh, on, on their loss. Yeah, um, and it's interesting when, when you say the perception of him because he he came across almost as being very conservative. But you reckon that wasn't the case? Well, certainly in my experience of him it wasn't, but I suppose it, um, it, it, I'm aware of that uh, public perception uh, for whatever reason. Uh, but certainly, um, John was an ideas man. He was open to to innovation, uh, to new thinking, um, and you know wasn't ideologically hidebound as you know the typical, um, I suppose, lazy caricature of of of, of Fine Gael sometimes suggests that we're kind of in in that ideological position on, on the political spectrum. John wasn't, in my experience of him, in that way hidebound at all. He was open, he was engaging. If he had a fault, it was sometimes in those engagements that you had with him, it was, he felt he almost always had to win the argument. <laughs> sometimes it was about taking on new ideas, which he was always open to, but he was a vigorous debater and used that skill to assimilate new ideas and, 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 and new politics. You know, I, I, I sometimes think of, of, of people like him and 
uh, you know, others of previous generations in, in, in politics, how the TikTok generation would, would have suited or not. Um, certainly John was old-fashioned and decent as well in the sense of engaging with local people, giving time to people. And sometimes I think our politics today is somewhat poorer for the, the influence of social media and TikTok and how it has fueled the demise of that kind of decency and engagement. Mm. I saw uh, another one of your former Fine Gael leaders, Alan Duke, uh, d- described um, John Bruton. He was a, he was he had a fountain of good ideas. He says you could disagree with him and not have a row, but he was in a hurry to get things done. Yeah, he had a, a, like apart from his intellectual energy, he had a, a, almost this physical um, constant motion as well. Um, and and the combined effect of all of it was, was 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 quite a sight to behold. And certainly for somebody starting out in politics, as I said earlier. Um, he was a colossus. He he um, he was inspiring as well. And um, you know, we don't say likely that we won't see the likes of him again. But he was unique, uh, certainly. Let me bring in David Stanton, uh, Fine Gael, uh, TD for Cork East. Uh, good morning, David. Um, you you were elected in in 1997, which would have been just as John Bruton was coming out of the Rainbow uh, government, which was was a very tight uh, election for John Bruton. It wasn't that bad an election in that they gained uh, nine seats, but of course it was Labour that got um, decimated. What were the early days like for you under John Bruton? Yeah, I remember the first uh, day in the Dáil we were on the opposition for, or the government side for for an hour and then when we came back after lunch we were for, it's been 14 years on the other side. As as, as Michael has said, he he, he was a, a bundle of energy and even I saw him there a little while ago and in, in the Dáil he was walking on the corridors and he always walked very quickly. Um, as Michael said as well, a huge intellect, always thinking very much a European, very much into European integration, um, also a pacifist of the Redmond tradition. He, he hated violence, didn't, couldn't stand violence at all when he thought it couldn't be justified. Um, and you were talking there a while ago about the whole conservative nature, uh, a rumour or, or portrait of him, but if you remember in 1995, his intervention got the divorce referendum over the line. Yeah. And that was hugely important. So he was he was a liberal in, in many senses. He was also very much into business and um, enterprise. He was minister for enterprise uh, for, for for two terms, and he was very much into the idea of free enterprise and business. And you know, uh, a, a country like Ireland actually standing on its own two feet. And you know, a lot of the things he did in the ninety four, the ninety seven government, and that government that they actually I think laid the foundations for what we have today and built on what went in the past. Uh, but he was very much into that. He was also uh, a man of great dignity and passion. He was, he, he was get, I remember Michael as well at parliamentary party meetings and all those. He would get very passionate about stuff. He really felt deeply about the things he espoused and put forward and the arguments he made. And most recently, he was very concerned about Putin and the threat to democracy and what's happening in Ukraine. Very concerned about that. And I think he saw a parallel there with what happened in Germany in the 30s. And, and that, that would again obviously have gone totally against his idea of what democracy is all about. And, and he was very concerned about the threat to democracy by that kind of activity. And it's it's interesting that you you mentioned that you know he he didn't tolerate uh, violence. Uh, he was he was influen- very influential in the Northern Ireland peace process, and you know um, he he's not often remembered for that. I mean, he launched the Anglo-Irish Framework document with what was then the the British Prime Minister John Major. 
he did and and you know right up to the very you know end he was deeply interested in what happened in Northern Ireland and right all all over those years he fought very hard for the for the democratic process to occur he was kind of in the Sunningdale agreement all that and of course nowadays now right now today and this weekend I suppose it's ironic that we have the assembly back and the executive back in the north and both sides sitting down. Violence is gone. The gun, thankfully, is completely gone. And people are working democratically. And as Michael has said, you know, you might not always agree with John, and he would argue his case very, very strongly if he had a a point to make. But he certainly, he was a visionary. He also reached out. He was very strong in young Fine Gael and young people, and having young people involved. He saw the importance of that. So you can take a whole lot of boxes here. Uh, for the man. But uh, again, I think I, I found him in, in initially quite intimidating because he was such a colossus. He was such a big personality. And, you know, he will be missed. Mm, yeah. And somebody else wants to, to point out only for John Bruton following the death of Veronica Kieran, uh, Michael, uh, his government established the Criminal Assets Bureau. Yeah, that was huge at the time. Uh, he was totally against. Uh, violence of any sort and crime and that was a major shock I remember it well because I think we were kind of you know before the election occurred that, that, that all that kind of happened and you know it was a big big event and it was a tragic event and of course we must remember his family now as well I work very closely with Richard at the moment and as Michael said as well and his wife and family and children they will miss him hugely because overall when someone passed away like this it's a personal family issue as well and we mustn't forget that yeah, yeah. And he was the first, he presided over the first visit by a member of the British royal family, uh, which, and obviously there's a lot of focus on King Charles uh, at the moment. That was the first, I think, in something nearly 100 years. It, it was. And on top of that, remember, he became UE, UE ambassador to the United States, which was a first as well, you know, and that was a very, very big um, and important uh, position at the time. But he he he, he wanted dialogue, discussion, democracy. Uh, that was his kind of uh, totally anti-violence. That was, I suppose, what I took from what he has to say, and I would, I would totally agree with him on that. Okay, so Michael, how will you best remember the now late John Bruton? Well, I, I, I think it was interesting listening to, to David there, the breadth of his uh, contributions. But I think he he was really driven by Ireland's place in the world and Ireland's place uh, as. Um, functioning neighbours with the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland was a huge part of his political life and his commitment to progress there. It was interesting to see Don Major and Bertie Hearn both acknowledging his pivotal role in the the peace process. But I I, I do think Ireland's place in the world and Ireland's place in the European Union in particular and uh, uh, being able to stand on our own two feet um, in, in economic terms and in Political terms was something that he personified um, through all his years in politics. Um, we won't see his legs again. Mm. And uh, David, finally to you, how will you best remember John Bruton? Well, I remember he came to Middleton uh, when I started off in politics to op- officially open an office, and it was a huge day. And, you know, uh, an awful lot of people in the town and the area came along to, to meet him and to see him and to shake hands, and, to, and he really enjoyed it. He had a very... A strong laugh uh, because he, he he really you know had a great sense of humour behind it all and he he would laugh loudly and deeply 
um, when he when he got the humour or something, and he liked people, he liked meeting people, engaging with people. But I remember that particular event, probably one of the first engagements I had with him, really, and and um, it was an enjoyable memory for a lot of us here. Okay, and as uh, both of you said, we just pass our deepest, deepest sympathies to his wife Fanula, his brother Richard, and the rest of the family. Listen, um, boys, thank you for that, and thanks for joining us on the program. Thank you. Uh, good morning to you both. Our good afternoon has gone past twelve. Michael Creed, uh, Fianna Gael TD for Cork Northwest, and David Stan. Anton Finnegan TD for Cork uh, East as we remember the late John Bruton who passed away today. May he rest in peace. Joe Heffernan joining us. Good afternoon to you, Joe. Good afternoon, Patricia. And did you have a nice bank holiday weekend? Very, very, very quiet. Um, basically had a good rest. Yeah. That was it. <laughs> it seemed, it, I, I felt for me anyway yesterday, it just seemed such a strange bank holiday, particularly I was doing, you know, some research uh, for work uh, today and it just felt like the rest of the world was working and we weren't. It almost felt like I was on the dag from school, that I should have been in school, but I wasn't. I think it's just a bank holiday we need to get uh, used to. Yeah. OK, today we're going to talk about self-esteem and yeah. the benefits of having good self-esteem. And I'm very conscious of our own self-esteem, but also for parents listening about instilling it's probably one of the greatest gifts you can give your child is to instill good self-esteem. So whenever we talk about self-esteem, you talk about the building blocks of self-esteem. Yeah, yeah. well, the, the building blocks are, and I will mention each one of them uh, again, but um, a sense of security, a sense of identity, a sense of belonging, a sense of purpose and a sense of competence. Now, the first one, a sense of security. Um, you know, I suppose like the word security suggests um, a feeling of safety. Um, uh, many people, when they would mention a sense of security, uh, the head would go to financial uh, security. But I mean, you know, uh, do I feel secure in my job? Do I feel secure um, in my family? Do I feel secure uh, in in where I live? Um, you know, uh, it, it has many branches, this sense of security. Yeah, it and, isn't um, just about how much money is in the bank. No, indeed. No, indeed. In, in fact, that would be down the line a bit, I think. Um, the other ones would be more important. Um, yeah, feeling safe, uh, feeling secure in, in one's life. Um, uh, would have a much broader um, uh, vista than than just uh, financial security, indeed. Yeah. Okay, and, and then, then yeah, you yeah, move on then to identity. A sense of identity, like who am I? Um, I remember chatting with someone many years ago, and they mentioned. Um, I think they called it a SWOT in analysis. Anyway, S-W-O-T, and it was um, uh, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Now, by threats, I, I presume it just means obstacles. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? What opportunities have I uh, to do A, B, or C? And um, and what is the threat to getting those achieved or done? So, like, my strengths might be, uh, one would list them, um, 
uh, I get on well with people. Um, uh, I I I am able to assert myself as we talked about last week. Mm. Um, you know, I'm able to express my opinion. Um, uh, I am kind to other people. Um, uh, you know that we would that we would enumerate for ourselves and write them down our strengths. Now, our weaknesses, um, our weaknesses might be, um, a lot of people would speak of shyness. Um, uh, another uh, weakness might be procrastination, um, meaning to do A, B, C, D, but not getting it done. Um, uh, fear, worry, anxiety, these would weaken one's um daily living, um, what can I do about them? So, and that would come up under purpose later on. So my strengths and my weaknesses, like who am I as a person? What am I good at and what do I need to improve? Yeah, and the weaknesses can be improved on. Absolutely, yeah. without a doubt. So, so, yeah. you, so you go from identity to belonging. Are, are they similar? I think they would be very, very much I mean, when when we think about our identity, um, uh, I mean, belonging definitely comes into it. I mean, um, uh, you know, my 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 family, my relationship, my um, my my job, um, uh, you know, uh, what I like, what I dislike. Um, uh, you know, some people are very outgoing and are great to join um, this or that or the other thing. Um, other people are more reclusive and um, prefer to, you know, to pursue solitary, we'll say, um, uh, hobbies or whatever. So uh, my sense of belonging. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm a member of everything in the community. Uh, I could be a member of none of the organizations in a community and I might still feel that I belong. Belong there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 And then uh, purpose. Well, a sense of purpose then would be um, uh, are there things in my life that I need to do or that I want to do and um, uh you know, to maybe write out a few goals. Um, they say that um, writing out a goal makes it much, much more likely to that actually be achieved. Yeah yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They've always said that. And then competence. Well, a feeling of I'm able. If you remember when Obama was here in Ireland, um, he got a great cheer for breaking into a bit of Gaelic at one stage when he said, is featherling. And I suppose if we have the attitude of is fairling, um or is fairlum, um, I am able. Um you know, that is a big help because it gives um, a sense of um uh, confidence for the future. Yeah, I'm able. Yeah. And maybe we can look back on things that we did or didn't do and that um you know, that we can um uh, help ourselves by saying, well, uh, as they say, I never died a winter yet, um, that, uh, that, that I came through A, B, and C, 
and that I'll also get through D&E. Do you know that kind of way? Yeah, yeah. And then to have... You know, I'm conscious of me listening. How would you know you had a good self-esteem and, and what are the benefits of it? Well, one of the big benefits would be acceptance of self. Um, you know, the, the ability to acknowledge and to live with our personal strengths and weaknesses and to recognize them, to be able to say, I'm good at that and I'm not so good at that, but mm-hmm. I could get better at that. But, um, yeah, recognizing our strengths and weaknesses and um, maybe maybe not um, leaping over a cliff um, and finding, no, I wasn't able to do that. I can't fly. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then coming to terms with past behaviours. So I think we all need yeah. to, be, uh, to, to, to do that. We all, um, they say that, um, if I can remember it now, they say um, that every saint has a past. Yeah. And every... Uh, sinner has a future. That's good. So. That's, yeah, that's good. So you can say, well, I, what I did at that time was wrong or, you know, it wasn't the right thing to do. But you move on from it and you learn from it. Well, you try to accept it because, I mean, as the serenity prayer says, you know, serenity to accept the things I cannot change. And um, in, in 99.999% of cases, we can't change the past. Um, maybe we can make a change in the present, but we can't change the past. And we need eventually to accept that. And that can be very tough. Um, you know, it, it's not easy uh, and then, to accept the past. And the next one then is, is feeling likable. This is actually liking yourself. Is, well, this, is, yes. is that what you're saying there? It is indeed. Um, feeling likable. I suppose at the end of the day, it means feeling like that you get on with people. Yeah, but that, you're not um, a bad person. No, yeah. no. And that, you know, that um, that you accept people as they are, unless that they're doing you a definite wrong. Um, and um, and that you accept yourself with, as we said above uh, before there, with, with our strengths and our weaknesses and being able to acknowledge them and to, to a certain degree, accept them. We have no trouble accepting our strengths, but maybe we need to have a look at weaknesses and to say, well, can I change that? And in many cases, we can. Yeah. Having a strong self of worth and of personal belonging. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Again, now, being able to say, I'm okay, you're okay. We can go through a period in our lives when we're saying, I'm okay, uh, you're not okay. Um, we can go through a time when it's I'm not okay, you're okay. And then we get to I'm okay and you're okay. okay. Yeah. But we accept ourselves and others um, with our strengths and weaknesses and, and those of others. And then yeah. being able to act independently and take responsibility for your own actions. I think that's yeah. a big, that's a big yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. Not to get into the blaming culture of... Um, Whatever happens, um, if it's good, that's me. And if it's bad, it's someone else's fault. Um, Because that might just not necessarily be true. Um, So, yeah, to take responsibility for our own actions um, uh, and, and to feel confident and empowered by the actions that we took that turned out to be good. That, um, you know, we didn't always get it wrong. Mm. Indeed, we didn't. 
Being relaxed yeah. and able to manage stress. Now, a lot of people will be shaking their head on that one and saying, uh, I did a lovely uh, restorative yoga session on Friday uh, for two hours and it was all about being relaxed and, and you know, managing stress. Uh, but I, but I, I admit, I really had to concentrate on the breathing and the relaxation. Now, I did get into it, but I had to work at it. Right. And you see, it's not natural um, to uh, to get into the, the, to practice the proper breathing and relaxation exercise. So we've to learn it and then we've to practice it. Um, You know, we've often spoken about the breathing uh, down to the tummy, feeling the tummy expand and then breathing out and um, letting the shoulders come down. That, um, yeah, that uh, I'd often practice that now um, in going to sleep. Um, I find it helps an awful lot in, uh, in just getting to sleep. And instead of thoughts about this, that and the other thing going through my head, I just would be thinking, of the I'm breathing. breathing in, yeah, yeah. I'm breathing out. And it's, yeah. Yeah, it, it does, it completely blanks the mind. Being able to communicate your feelings. As somebody with spoke, high self-esteem is well able to do that. Yeah, and we spoke last week about assertiveness. Yeah. Um, being able to ask for what you want and being able to say no to what you don't want. Um you know, that that was very much what we spoke about last Tuesday. Yeah. And that ties in with, and then when need occurs, being able to ask somebody for help. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, um, there are people who have expertise in this, that and the other thing, whether it's a neighbour, whether it's a professional, whatever. And being able to say um, could you give me a hand with this, please? Um, I, I need to know about whatever, A, B or C. Um, but being able to ask, um, uh, I, I would have always found I, was, I, was, I had no problem asking for help um, in whatever. Mm. Um, but some people, um, apparently, um, you know, would find it uh, difficult. And would I, find and it very yeah, difficult yeah, to and, just and ask I know for help. I know men find it difficult to ask for directions, whereas women will roll down the window straightway and ask for directions. But I remember <laughs> in a town one yeah. time in France, there was a fellow driving me, and um, he kept on saying, you know, don't ask, don't, don't, no, no, we won't <laughs> ask for it. And in the finish, when we passed over this bridge for about the sixth time, <laughs> I said, look, will you pull up and I'll ask. And it turned out where we were looking for was about 100 yards down and turned to the right. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's more arguments in the car between, uh, between a male and a female because the female <laughs> wants to ask for directions and the man doesn't. They, okay. they, they think they can always find it. Being happy and having a good sense of humour. I mean, people well, with, I people with good, good self-esteem, yeah. Save us all yeah, it can. You know, there's very few situations where there isn't some little nugget of humour to be found in it. And if we find that, it, it lightens the load. It does, it does. Yeah. And then the final one is being proud of personal um, accomplishments, the very big ones, but also the very small ones. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, if you meant um, uh, to do, uh, uh, we talked or something came up recently about decluttering. And I mean, if we start it and do a little bit, well then, um, being able to say well done. Yeah, good. Yeah. I started anyway. I and keep... then there are the big ones, like, um, you know, uh, succeeding in college and getting one's degree, succeeding in getting a job after the leaving cert, um, succeeding in an apprenticeship. All of those things, um, they're big things in life. And I think we can be proud of them. 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and we can all work on our self-esteem and important to work on our children's self-esteem. Joe, as always, a pleasure. Thank you for that. Have a lovely week and we'll chat and next Tuesday. Patricia. Thanks a million. Joe runs a counselling practice in Bohobui. His number is 086-834-8145. 086-834-8145. How am I doing time-wise? I have a couple of minutes. Just uh, some of your commentary uh, coming in. Tom says, this is on the deposit and return scheme. Uh, Tom says this extra money that we're being charged the 15 cent and the 25 cent on the larger bottles who will end up getting that money? I can't see all of the bottles and cans being claimed back for the deposit. Is this not another backdoor tax? And Tom doesn't believe it'll improve much things. Well, they're saying no. They're saying if people, well, more fool the people who pay a deposit and then don't bring back the bottles or cans. I think what we're going to see in the coming weeks and months, charities are going to start getting involved and we're going to start seeing containers around the place saying, donate your bottles and cans and charities will end up getting the money because the one thing that Return, who run running the scheme, are repains to point out it's cost neutral. You pay the 25 cent and you're entitled to get the 25 cent back. So more fool you, not you, Tom, but more fool people who decide to pay the deposit and then are not willing to go back and uh, get it. And on Imelda May, uh, some WhatsApps in, uh, people saying that they really enjoyed uh, Imelda May's interview. Thank you for that. I could listen to Imelda May all day, says this uh, texture. She's so talented, but she also comes from the same part of Dublin as I am. I'm gone out of Dublin over 20 years and I've lost my accent. But when I hear Imelda speak, it reminds me of my aunts and my grandparents. Yes, she's got an absolutely uh, wonderful accent. And somebody says, when you're remembering John Bruton, let's not forget that he was the Minister for Finance at the time who tried to put VAT on uh, children's shoes. He did back in 1982. But of course, the government fell uh, because of that. It was a very controversial uh, budget and uh, they lost power uh, over that. Okay, that's where I leave you for today. My thanks to uh, John Paul and to Stephen for taking your calls uh, today. Nick Richards is with you for the afternoon. We'll talk to you tomorrow at 10 on to the Patricia Messenger. Very good afternoon. Cork Today on C103. With McCarthy Insurance Group, proud sponsors of the Cork GAA Club Football Leagues and Championships. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.